peace be upon you. So prior to the uh, turn of the century, uh, there was a big movement uh, where you find a lot of individuals uh, pointing out the scientific miracles encompassed inside the Quran. That the Quran had this information that it would have been impossible for someone in 7th century Arabia uh, to, to know. So for instance, in chapter 21, verse 30, it says, Do the unbelievers not realize that the heavens and earth used to be one solid mass that we exploded into existence? And from water we made all living things. Now, anyone who hears this realizes the parallelism between this verse and our findings regarding the Big Bang. That when we look at the cosmos, if we were to play this in reverse, that it all comes down to one singularity that uh, uh, expanded to create time and space. And the fact that it says that from uh, water we made all living things, we now know that water is the prerequisite for life. And the Quran is replete with these kind of scientific details. It talks about mountains as stabilizers, that they're like pegs. And it's fascinating that that's how they operate, that this is how it's described in the Quran. And it talks about the expansion of the universe. Uh, it talks about the planets in their orbit and a multitude of other scientific findings embedded inside the Quran. Now, what happened at the turn of the century is that all of a sudden, the uh, ulama, they denounce all these scientific findings in the Quran. And there's predominantly two reasons because of it. Firstly, once they made the claim that these were scientific, it gave atheists and scientists a vector of attack against the Quran. And to eliminate that, they say, no, there is no scientific findings in the Quran, that it's neutral. It's, it's written in such a way where it's not indicating one scientific outcome or another, because if, it, if we find out later that one of these supposed scientific claims is false, then therefore people can discard the Quran, say that it's a fabrication. So they wanted to eliminate that possibility. But the bigger reason is there is a fundamental understanding that everything there is to know about the Quran must have been known by the prophet in 7th century Arabia. That if these concepts were not discussed by the prophet in the Hadith or the companions, therefore they hold no merit as if these people knew everything there was to know about the Quran. And this comes from their understanding that the best community was that of 7th century Arabia, and all we're doing is we're degrading from that best community. So anything that pulls us back to 7th century Arabia, the way they uh, lived, the way they ate, the way they uh, conducted themselves, their mannerisms, that's going to make the perfect society. And all this talk regarding science and how the world operates and seeing how this is being depicted in the Quran is just going to lead people astray because this is not what they discussed in 7th century Arabia. And I've been in discussions with traditionalists where I say, yeah, we have more information today than the prophet did when he was alive regarding the Quran. They considered this a blasphemy. The guy was so angry for me stating this. And I said, look, the prophet had no clue regarding how the uh, solar system operates, uh, what this universe is, the expansion of the universe, or the uh, embryology as described in chapter 96 and in chapters 23 of the Quran. And he was so up in arms at this statement. And I gave him this example. I said, do you think that the prophet knew of the periodic table? And uh, he says, you know, he reluctantly said no. And I said, okay, chapter 57 of the Quran is Al-Hadid. Al-Hadid means the iron. And in Arabic, every letter has a corresponding value. This is called the abjad system. That prior to Arabic numerals, which came around the uh, 9th and 10th century, uh, the way that they conducted, you know, math and accounting was by means of the, the Arabic letters. 
and that just like Roman numerals, each of these letters correspond with a number. And if you look at the word al-hadid, this word has a geometrical value of 57. And al-hadid is surah 57. But it gets more interesting. Iron is the 26th element in the periodic table. Hadid, the word for iron, if you get the geometrical value of hadid, you also get 26. Now, when people are presented with this, they have a few choices. Either one, they say, look, this is just a coincidence. You're reading too much into this. Or they say that, no, the prophet had this amazing, you know, understanding of science and technology, or he had people at that time who understood the periodic table and they fed him this information. Or the third option is that this book was not the byproduct of 7th century Arabia. It actually came from the Most High, the Omniscient, the creator of the universe that inspired his servant with these specific words, with these specific titles. Now, I would expect a, you know, uh, someone who doesn't believe in the Quran, uh, an atheist, you know, someone of a different faith, to uh, doubt what they're seeing, uh, to say that it's just a coincidence. But I find it very fascinating when someone who claims that they believe that this book, the author of this book was God Almighty, but then denounces such obvious things. I mean, this is not uh, guesswork. We know exactly the abjad system. We can do the accounts. We can verify this for ourselves. So either God was unaware of this or he's leading people on or no, there is a hidden message here. And what I like the most about this is that these are objective facts, right? We can look at the periodic table. We can see that iron is the 26th element of the periodic table. We can look at the word Hadid and see that this uh, word has a geometrical value of 26. That if you add the definitive uh, uh, article Al-Hadid, that this has a geometrical value of 57, which corresponds with the surah number. And to deny, you know, these objective truths, to say that this is a coincidence or that we're making it up from someone who claims to believe in the Quran is perplexing. And one of the other ones is the fact of the occurrence of certain words within the Quran and how they deny that these words occur in their respective occurrences in the Quran. Again, these are objective truths. If this is wrong, someone can point out, no, you're doing the counts wrong and just be uh, end the story. But rather than doing that, they just dismiss it altogether. So, for instance, uh, Surah 92 is Alayl, the night. And if you look at Alayl, Throughout the Quran, it occurs 92 times in the entire Quran. That's Surah 92, Alayl, and the number of times that Alayl is mentioned in the Quran is both 92. Like, that's just an objective fact. You know, anyone can go and verify this. But it gets more interesting. The word day, yom, in the Quran, in its singular form, occurs 365 times. And 365 obviously corresponds with the number of days in the solar year. If you look at the word days, plural, this occurs 30 times in the Quran. And this is the average number of days within a month. Now, when someone is presented with this, if my counts are wrong, they can show me. They can say, hey, look, this counts are off. You forgot this verse or uh, whatnot. That's not the case. So if they say that, okay, this is just a coincidence, that's quite a big coincidence. You know, if I read Harry Potter and I saw that in Harry Potter that it mentions day 365 times, I wouldn't assume that that's a coincidence. I'd be, okay, J.K. Rowling intended to do this. How clever. 
But in addition to day in the singular form being mentioned 365 times and days in its plural form being mentioned uh, uh, 30 times, we also have the word month in the singular form, shahr, mentioned 12 times, as in there's 12 months in the year. And this is confirmed also in the Quran, chapter 9, verse 36. This is the count of months as far as God is concerned is 12. This has been God's law since the day he created the heavens and the earth. Four of them are sacred. I mean, is it safe to say that this is all a coincidence or is this deliberate design? And it's funny, I presented this recently to someone who's a staunch atheist. And their objection was they said, well, look, the uh, uh, Islamic calendar goes by the lunar calendar and you're describing 365 days, which is the solar calendar. So they wanted to reject it. Now, what's funny is the Quran acknowledges both timing systems. So the word for solar year is Senna, while the word for lunar year is Om. This shows that there are two different systems for determining the year according to the Quran. And we can see this called out in the following verse regarding the sleepers of the cave and how long they were asleep in that cave. In chapter 18, verse 25 says they stayed in their cave 300 years increased by nine. And it just happens that 300 solar years is equivalent to 309 lunar years. And if we count the number of times that Am is mentioned in the Quran, we see that this word for lunar year occurs exactly nine times in the Quran. That 300 solar years, again, is equal to 309 lunar years. And if you look at the word Sanna in all its forms, it occurs 19 times in the Quran. And this corresponds with what's known as the Metonic Cycle, a period of almost exactly 19 solar years after which the sun, moon, and earth come back to their exact same alignment. And the lunar phases recur at the same time of year. So to put it another way, if we looked exactly where the earth, moon, and sun are today in their orbits, and come back exactly 19 years later to the date, we'll see that these three bodies are all in the same alignment as they are today. And this is known as the Metonic Cycle. And on top of that, if we look at every time that the words sun, shams, and moon, qamar, occur in the same verse, we find that they occur exactly 19 times in the same verse. So out of the 33 times that the word sun, shams, is mentioned, and the 27 times that the word qamar is mentioned, if we're just counting the ones where these two words occur in the same verse, again, they occur 19 times together, indicating this metonic cycle of these heavenly bodies. So back to the atheist who is doubting uh, the fact that, you know, day in the singular form being mentioned 365 times, uh, Sabbath being mentioned seven times, uh, days being mentioned 30 times, uh, month in the singular form occurring 12 times. His argument was, well, the Quran should also signify the lunar year. And I asked him, if, if I show him this, will he believe? Obviously, he, he did not concede to this. But the Quran also accounts for this. If we count the number of times that day is mentioned in the singular form, from the first occurrence of the word month in chapter 2, verse 185, 
to the last occurrence of the word month in chapter 97 verse 3, what we find is that the number of times that day in the singular form occur within this range is exactly 354 times, which corresponds with the number of days in the lunar year. Everything that I discussed so far are objective truths of the Quran. You know, if I'm wrong in one of my counts, someone should easily be able to point it out. But if I'm not, when it comes to the traditionalists, this destroys their entire understanding that anything that there is to be known about the Quran must have been known by A, the prophet, and the earliest companions and the scholars. Because up until modern times, we did not know these facts. These are something that as our scientific advancement improved, we looked at the Quran and we analyzed it and we were able to extract this information. And God willing, in the future, they're going to have even more information regarding the scientific merits of the Quran that we're oblivious to today. So traditionalists in this regard need to reassess their entire paradigm of how they understand the Quran. That this was not a book just written for 7th century Arabia. That this is a book for the entire human population from its revelation to the time of the day of judgment. That this book is embedded with all kinds of information. That as our knowledge increases, we will be able to extract more wisdom and knowledge out of this book, reassuring our hearts. Now the atheists are in a bind. Their claim is that Muhammad wrote this himself. Maybe he had the help of others. But you have to ask, who at that time and place would have this level of information, would be able to construct such a book? And they're dumbfounded by this. They are distressed. And all they can do is just deny it, say that it's a coincidence. Oh, it's a, it's a coincidence that these uh, occurrences of these words correspond with what we see in physical reality. So they're stumped on that regard. And there's a third group. You have the people of the previous scripture, you know, predominantly that of Christians and Jews. And it was funny, I was talking to a Christian and I presented these facts to them. I said, look, I want to show you that this book is not uh, written by someone in 7th century Arabia. And I presented this to him. And he says, well, I believe that this book was written by Satan. And what's fascinating is this goes against their own doctrine. In Matthew 16, 22, we read the following about Jesus. It says, then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The takeaway here is, if Jesus was representing Satan, how is he able to cast out demons who are agents of Satan? Because he says a house divided against itself will not stand. And when we read the Quran, 
the Quran consistently tells us to seek refuge from Satan the rejected, that he is our most ardent opponent, that the only salvation is to God alone, the Almighty, the most gracious, the most merciful. So since the Quran preaches the absolute worship of God alone and the denouncement of the devil, therefore this book, this structure, can be by no other than God Almighty. That is why when we read the Quran, we are commanded to seek refuge in God from Satan the rejected. So by their own logic, if the Quran casts out demons and gives us protection in God alone from the whispers of the devil, therefore this book cannot be from the devil. Therefore it must be from God Almighty Himself. So this shows the believers that this book is a book from God. And these miracles reassure the hearts of the believers that what we have today is the authentic Word of God transmitted to the Prophet himself, preserved for 1400 years for us to learn from and grow from. And this gaining of understanding did not stop in 7th century Arabia. It will continue to progress until the day of resurrection. And this is what a miracle does. It serves five functions, and this is spelt out in chapter 74, verse 31 of the Quran. The first thing is, it does is it disturbs the disbelievers, that it's going to rattle them. The second thing, it's going to convince the Christians and Jews that this Quran is a divine scripture. The third thing is that it strengthens the faith of the faithful. The fourth is it removes all trace of doubt from the hearts of Christians, Jews, as well as the believers. And the fifth thing is to expose those who harbor doubts in their hearts. And the disbelievers will say, what did God mean by this? God thus sends astray whomever he wills and guides whomever he wills. None knows the soldiers of your Lord except he. This is a reminder for the people. This is the anatomy of a miracle. When God manifests his miracles for the human population, it's going to have these five outcomes. And this is how we can determine if we believe or disbelieve. When we hear these facts, these objective truths about the Quran, do we become skeptical? Do we become disturbed? Does it bother us? Does it expose the doubt we harbor? Or does it reassure our hearts? Does it draw us closer to God? Does it make us more reverent? Depending on which outcome this has, we will know where we stand. And this is one of the calibration mechanisms God is telling us that we can utilize to tell where on the spectrum do we fall. Are we believers or are we doubters? Because if we hear these facts, these objective truths of the Quran, and it doesn't strengthen our faith in God, it doesn't reassure our hearts about the Quran, then we should reassess our entire belief system. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys want to get in contact, please join us on our Discord server. We have lively discussions, Quran studies, recitations, meditation sessions, and all kinds of good stuff. Uh, we would love to have like-minded individuals there to discuss and grow from. Uh, if you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, you can go to the Quran study app uh, on, on the iOS app store. If you don't have an iOS device, you can go to QuranCityApp.com. And if you want notes from today's discussion, you can go to the Quran Talk blog. And there you can see the counts for every uh, item we discussed, the number of times the words occur within the Quran, their respective uh, chapters and surahs. And again, if there's something I've said that's wrong, I would love to be corrected. But if there isn't, then by God's leave, we each have a choice as far as how we choose 
to receive these miracles that God is bestowing upon us. God willing, until next time, peace and God bless.